The new age of planet hunting with JWST begins this week on Planetary Radio. I'm Sarah Al-Ahmed of the Planetary Society with more of the human adventure across our solar system and beyond. The James Webb Space Telescope has found its first exoplanet. Jacob Lustig-Jaeger, one of the leads on the team that confirmed the new world, joins us to discuss the groundbreaking discovery and what it means for the future of exoplanet hunting. We'll close out our show with Dr. Bruce Betts as he brings you up to speed on what's going on in the night sky and what's up. Now we turn to this week's space mission briefings. In April, the European Space Agency's Jupiter Icy Moons Explorer, or JUICE mission, will finally embark on its journey to the Jovian system. It will study Jupiter's potentially ocean-bearing moons, Ganymede, Europa, and Callisto. The mission is all set to be shipped to its launch facility in French Guiana. It's going to take about eight years for it to reach Jupiter, but we know that the data will be worth the wait. The Lucy spacecraft, which NASA launched in October of 2021 on a mission to study Jupiter's Trojan asteroids, is still facing issues with one of its two solar arrays. The mission team says that the spacecraft is still functioning well enough to do its job, but their attempts to fix the array have been unsuccessful so far. Don't worry, though. The team's efforts to correct the deployment will pick back up when Lucy moves back towards the sun on its trajectory toward Jupiter later this year. We'd also like to send a huge congratulations to the team behind NASA's Ingenuity Mars helicopter. The small experimental drone spacecraft has successfully completed its 40th flight on Mars. The little copter has accompanied the Perseverance rover on its journey across the Martian surface for almost two years now. That's so much longer than it was expected to work, and that team should be so proud. You can learn more about these and other stories in our January 27th edition of The Downlink. That's the Planetary Society's weekly newsletter. Read it online or get it sent to your inbox for free every Friday at planetary.org downlink. Now it's time to get into our main topic for today, planet hunting. You know, it wasn't so long ago that finding exoplanets orbiting distant stars was really difficult. But with advances in technology, new space telescopes, and a new generation of people with a passion for finding worlds, humanity can be proud to report that we've discovered more than 5,000 exoplanets beyond our solar system. Now NASA's James Webb Space Telescope, or JWST, has officially joined the planet-finding effort and has discovered its first world. JWST is a new infrared space telescope that was decades in the making. It's revolutionary in so many ways and has already taught us a lot about distant galaxies and the early universe. But part of what makes it so powerful in our quest to learn more about the cosmos is JWST's ability to not only find exoplanets, but analyze the atmospheres of these distant worlds and tell us more about their composition. Our guest today is Jacob Lustig-Jaeger. He's an astronomer, astrobiologist, and exoplanet hunting postdoctoral fellow at the Johns Hopkins University Applied Physics Laboratory in Maryland, USA. He and his colleague Kevin Stevenson lead the team that recently announced the discovery of the first confirmed exoplanet with JWST, a world named LHS 475b. It orbits a red dwarf star 41 light years away in the constellation of Octans 
And excitingly, it's almost exactly the same size as Earth. Of course, it's a very different world from Mars, but still. Their team first observed the exoplanet on August 31st, 2022, and it's just one exoplanet in a series of Earth-sized worlds their team is planning to study. They're using a method called transmission spectroscopy to teach us more about the atmospheres of worlds that are similar to the size of ours. When distant exoplanets pass between us and their stars, we can study the light that passes through the air shrouding those worlds and learn more about their atmospheric composition. JWST is the only telescope capable of accomplishing this feat for rocky Earth-sized worlds, so this moment marks a whole new age of exoplanet detection and study. Welcome to Planetary Radio, Jacob. It's good to be here. Thanks for having me. I want to say congratulations to you and your team for detecting the first planet with the James Webb Space Telescope. I mean, it's a whole new age of exoplanetary discovery, and your team is going to be in the history books. Uh, yeah, thank you. Thank you. The uh, rate of exoplanet detection is really increasing these days with over 5,000 discovered. So it's an exciting time to be studying exoplanets. Good time to be in this field. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. I watched your press conference at the 241st American Astronomical Society meeting in January, and that had to be so exciting to finally get up there and, and share this discovery with the astronomical community. I mean, after so many years of dedicating your life to exoplanet discovery, like, what did that feel like? It was really cool. JWST has been in science operation mode since July, taking data diligently and We've had these data on our hands since early September and worked really hard to put this out and sort of get the materials ready for the AAS conference. So it was really nice to be able to share that both with the press and with the astronomical astrophysical community. You're part of the team that confirmed the detection of this planet called LHS 475b, but this is just the first step in a broader program for the James Webb Space Telescope to try to hunt for these Earth-sized worlds and study their atmospheres. And, you know, in order to, to do this, your team looked through data from the, the transiting exoplanet survey satellite that hunts for planets. You had all kinds of options. Why was this the planet that your team decided to go for out of all the different worlds you could have explored? Yeah, that's a great question. And I will say that it's one of uh, five planets that we have in our Cycle 1 program to search for atmospheres on small rocky planets. And so it sort of made the cut in terms of a handful of planets that we're interested in. And so this planet is, you know, it was hinted at, it was, it was a planet candidate prior to our observations, indicated by the test satellite, like you said. And so we had a sense for when we would need to observe the star to see it transit and to be able to confirm its, its detection. And the planet itself we knew would be around 600 degrees, and that's much warmer than the Earth. It's not in the habitable zone. Part of the motivation for this planet is that we are trying to understand the limits of which planets have atmospheres and which don't, and what processes drive atmospheres to be lost from Earth-sized planets so that we can put together these physical processes and make better predictions ahead of time when we detect planets about where which ones we think might have atmospheres, and then also to just further our general understanding of atmospheric science and exoplanet science through the whole population of planets and whether or not they have atmospheres. But, you know, there are a slew of instruments aboard JWST, and 
you specifically use the near-infrared spectrograph in order to take these readings. Can you tell us a little bit about you know, what that instrument does and why it's so useful for studying atmospheres? Yeah, so JWST has all these different instruments and different modes for each instrument. It's kind of like looking at this giant menu and being excited about all the different options. And it just blows out of the water the, the options that were available for exoplanet science with the Hubble Space Telescope, and which is still a very capable space telescope 30 years later. And so we chose the near-spec instrument partially because of the wavelength range that it covers in the electromagnetic spectrum. We knew that we wanted to target molecular absorption features in a potential atmosphere of this planet. And fortunately, from laboratory studies here on Earth of molecules, we know exactly what wavelengths each molecule absorbs. And so we specifically were targeting wavelengths where we'd be sensitive to methane and carbon dioxide two very common molecules in the solar system that are kind of the two forms of carbon. If you have carbon, you're likely to have it in methane or carbon dioxide. Of course, there's many other molecules out there. Those are just extremely common, and they're both covered in this wavelength range that we targeted. Also, the stars tend to be quite bright in the near-infrared where near-spec covers, and so brighter star leads to brighter backlighting when the planet passes in front and blocks the light. So you're going to get better quality data than, say, choosing longer wavelength observations. And then finally, the near-spec instrument has like the highest sensitivity than all other instruments, uh, or at least in the near-infrared wavelength range. So it kind of a few different lines of reasoning came together for that choice. Mm-hmm. It all makes sense, you know. It's kind of uh, fortuitous that in this case, the star, you know, very bright in the telescope, but also kind of a smaller star. It's a, it's a red dwarf star, correct? That's right. Yeah. And uh, for people following along at, with the specific details, this is an M3.5. It's a main sequence M dwarf. It's about 3,300 degrees Kelvin, so a uh, little over half the temperature of the sun. We've gone over some of the details on this planet, but let's just do a full rundown. Like, what do we know about this world so far from these two transits? Right. So prior to observations, the radius of the planet that TESS was reporting was really, really uncertain. It was possible that it was Earth size, but it could have been smaller than Mars, and it could have been nearly almost twice the size of Earth, just a huge range of sizes. And because we're looking at the planet transit, it it tends to be extremely sensitive to the radius of the planet. Like that's the key thing that we're observing with really high precision. And so the first thing we're able to update is the planet radius, which we found delightfully is 0.99 Earth radii. So it's exactly the same size as Earth. So that is just a serendipitous thing An interesting thing is that we don't actually know the mass right now. The types of measurements that are required to measure the mass have not been made yet. Mm -hmm. And so we took a look at the population of M-dwarf Earth-sized planets that had measured masses and radii, and, and we were able to estimate what the mass of this planet might be if it shares many characteristics with that population of M-dwarf rocky planets, in which case they tend to be slightly underdense relative to the Earth. So we think its mass will be maybe around 90% that of Earth, but there's a broad range of uncertainty on that. So it could, it could be, have more iron in its interior than Earth and end up being heavier than Earth's mass, or it might have a larger water fraction than Earth. That could lead to it being less dense than Earth. 
I've got to ask, you know, because 99% is really close to 100%. And how does that compare to all of the other Earth-sized exoplanets that we've found so far? I, I don't know if I've heard of one that's 99% the radius of Earth. That's wild. I, you know, I don't know. I haven't heard of it, of one off the top of my head that is as close to being Earth-sized. Mm-hmm. And of course, it, you know, I got to say again that it's much hotter than the Earth. It, it is very different from Earth in probably every other way, but it just happens to be Earth-sized. And that also, you know, that's a very cool characteristic to share. Mm-hmm. There are all kinds of things that could play into that temperature there. And I've got, I've got some questions about that. But mm-hmm. I mean, the primary reason is probably just that it is so close to its, its star and it's not really in the habitable zone, right? It's a little too close to its star for that to be true. Yeah, it receives about 20 times the amount of light from its star than Earth receives from the sun. So that mm-hmm. puts it well interior to the habitable zone and hotter than Venus, actually, at least without knowledge of any atmospheres in either case, because Venus is a very interesting case in terms of an atmosphere. Yeah. And, you know, you guys did try to figure out whether or not this thing has an atmosphere, but you weren't exactly able to answer that question just yet. So what do we know about this planet's atmosphere if it does exist? We were able to take our extremely precise measurements and they ruled out really extended atmospheres that are composed of hydrogen and helium. Those tend to be the easiest for astronomers to rule out first because these type of atmospheres that are you know, similar maybe to Jupiter or Saturn's atmosphere, that they're composed of really light molecules with smaller amounts of other gases like methane, carbon dioxide, carbon monoxide, water. But uh, when you have light molecules in an atmosphere, it tends to make that atmosphere way less and it can extend more out. And since, again, we're measuring the radius of the planet here and we're looking for the signs of molecules and the way they make the radius of the planet larger at specific wavelengths where the atmosphere absorbs light, And this is the method of transmission spectroscopy that we're using here. And hydrogen-dominated atmospheres would have shown up in our data at like night and day. We would have seen massive spectroscopic features from hydrogen and helium causing the atmospheres to be extended. And we didn't see that at all. We measured an incredibly precise, very flat line. And so we can throw out all the possibilities that involved hydrogen and helium in this atmosphere. Now, we are able to weakly disfavor a model that has, say, a pure methane atmosphere. Methane Mm -hmm. is uh, much heavier than hydrogen and helium, but a lot lighter than some of the other molecules that we considered. And that tends to have a bit more of an extended atmosphere as well. And I already mentioned that we kind of targeted this wavelength range specifically to be sensitive to methane and carbon dioxide. And so we don't see a methane feature in our spectrum. And so that leads us to disfavor that pure methane model, but it could still have an atmosphere where the bulk of it isn't made of methane, but it still has some methane in it. And then sort of the the most difficult thing is that if we take a look at a pure carbon dioxide atmosphere, similar to that of Mars or Venus, we also get a spectrum that would be a flat line just like we measured. So we don't have the precision from these two observations to distinguish between a pure flat line that would be the result of a completely airless world with no atmosphere and a Mars-like or Venus-like atmosphere with 100% carbon dioxide. And so it's going to require further observations to distinguish between those two cases. But I think 
you know, while there are other atmospheric possibilities besides like a pure carbon dioxide, it, it provides a really good goalpost to aim for because it is a difficult uh, measurement to make because carbon dioxide is one of the heavier molecules we'd expect to be there. It leads to the atmosphere being very compact. And even though it has extremely strong and well-known spectroscopic features, the compact nature of those carbon dioxide atmospheres just presents a challenge that, that will just require more data. Yeah. And that kind of brings me around to the temperature of the planet, because, you know, I always think of atmospheres kind of like planetary jackets, you know, they, they hold in some of that heat. And I'm wondering if that might give us some clues here, because if the planet has absolutely no atmosphere, we can think of that scenario, its surface temperature is going to be mostly dependent on its star and how close it is and how wide across this planet is. But in the case that there's an atmosphere, I mean, maybe it's holding on to extra heat that could give us a clue, right? Yeah, and, and that can kind of go both ways, because with Venus and Earth, that's certainly the case where the atmosphere causes the greenhouse effect that allows it to blanket in and trap heat and makes the surface temperature much, much higher than you would expect for an airless body. But on the other hand, these really close-in planets around M-dwarfs are thought to be tidally locked and, and synchronously rotating so that they have a permanent day side that always faces the star and a permanent night side that never faces the star, which is a really interesting scenario for a planet and really gets our sci-fi minds thinking here. Mm -hmm. And, you know, these planets might be quite a bit different. And many people study the atmospheric dynamics in such an atmosphere where you're looking at what direction the winds go and how might, might clouds form on the day side? Do those clouds transfer to the night side? What's going on? And so in these tidally locked, synchronously rotating atmospheres, the models suggest that they have extremely high winds that transport heat from the day side to the night side. And that kind of acts to cool the planet relative to what you might see for an airless body, at least on that day side. So mm -hmm. um, we tend to be slightly sensitive with a different type of observation. When you watch the planet pass behind the star at secondary eclipse, you can actually make a measurement of that dayside temperature. And so these types of recirculation might cool the planet relative to a constantly heated dayside where you'd expect this really hot, rocky surface that is just instantly radiating that heat back to us and, and able to be observed. So you know, it's, it's a bit more complicated than just the greenhouse effect, but there's really a path forward for learning more about this planet using JWST, I think. Well, all kinds of new planet finding to do and look forward to out there, Jacob. And I really want to thank you for joining us today. And please send our congratulations to the rest of your team for this discovery. It's got to be just such a great feeling. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. Sometimes when I'm looking at the sky, I think about all of those distant worlds, places no living creature has seen, and how beautiful it is that here we are, peering out into the universe with curiosity and optimism, wishing to know those places and searching for the familiar among the stars. Who knows what we'll discover next as JWST continues to look deeper into space than ever before. You can listen to the extended edition of my interview with Jacob Lustig-Jaeger, one of the leads on the team that discovered the first exoplanet with the James Webb Space Telescope, along with two bonus features on Jupiter's upcoming flybys of Io and how to see the green comet visiting our part of the solar system in the podcast and online version of this show. You can find it at planetary.org radio or anywhere you listen to your favorite podcasts.
We'll be right back for What's Up with Bruce Betts after this short break. Hello, I'm George Takei. And as you know, I'm very proud of my association with Star Trek. Star Trek was a show that looked to the future with optimism, boldly going where no one had gone before. I want you to know about a very special organization called the Planetary Society. They are working to make the future that Star Trek represents a reality. Boldly go to build our future. There is so much going on in space science and exploration, and we're here to share it with you. Hi, I'm Amber, Digital Community Manager for the Planetary Society. Catch the latest space exploration news, pretty planetary pictures, and Planetary Society publications on our social media channels. You can find the Planetary Society on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, and YouTube. I hope you'll like and subscribe so you never miss the next exciting update from the world of planetary science. Welcome back to Planetary Radio. And now it's time for What's Up with Dr. Bruce Betts. I am back once more with the brilliant Bruce Betts. You like the alliteration, Bruce? <laughs> I do. I'm with the stupendous Sarah. That counts. That works. <laughs> All right. I'll work. I'll work on that. Well, uh, bright and brainy Bruce, bringer of banter. Uh, what's up? Oh my gosh, I'm caught so off guard. Let's get into what's up in the night sky. How about that? We've got that comet, Comet ZTF C slash 2022 B3, that is tough to see if it's even possible to see with the naked eye, but maybe from a dark site and certainly with some binoculars or a telescope, you can see it at least as a fuzzy blob. And that is hanging out in the north, so it's actually uh, good for the northern hemisphere right now. It's terrible for the southern hemisphere, but will cross farther south in the next couple weeks. So I suggest you find a finder chart online. We've got a nice article on our website about the comet. Uh, it is beautiful and green and the like if you take long exposure pictures with a big telescope. And so they're great pictures of it. But Yeah, already I've seen some amazing images from some of my friends. I'm so excited. Yeah, no, it's very cool. There are some time lapses where you can see the gases coming off, the dust coming off. We've also got our friends, the planets, Venus, now hanging out with us for a few months over in the west, anytime after sunset in the early evening. And above super bright Venus is really bright Jupiter growing closer and closer together over the next month until they're very close together on March 1st. If you follow a line from Venus to Jupiter across the sky, you will reach Mars looking reddish, and it's good stuff. All right, we move on to this week in space history. It was 1971 when Apollo 14 landed humans on the moon, and some people view most significantly when Alan Shepard hit golf balls on the moon. <laughs> When I was a kid, I thought that was something that was just like from cartoons. And when I finally saw images of that, <laughs> I laughed really hard. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, it's quite funny. We move on to random space fact. Speaking of, which we're not, well, we actually are with golf balls. One of the unusual things to have flown in space was the baseball home plate from Shea Stadium of the New York Mets. It flew on a space shuttle STS-120 in 2009, just as the Mets moved from Shea Stadium to their new stadium, where it's now on display, to fit in the shuttle locker where they carried such items, you know, home plates. 
Mike Massimino, the astronaut, had to remove the outer black edges of it, and then they were put back together when they got back to Earth. If you are a Yankees fan, don't worry, 2008, dirt from the pitcher's mound of Yankee Stadium was flown on a space shuttle. It's funny, I bet you could write an entire book about all the strange things that have gone to space. Let us move on to the trivia contest, and I ask you whose voice was the first to be broadcast from space. How'd we do? We got a lot of answers for this one. Most of them were right. Some people did get confused on this one and thought we were asking them for who the first person in space to send a message was. But the answer was actually U.S. President Dwight Eisenhower, who on December 19th, 1958, sent a Christmas message that was broadcast by the Signal Communication and Orbiting Relay Satellite, uh, or SCORE. Score! Score! Yeah, and it was a it was a really lovely message, just kind of about uh, you know the United States wishing everyone peace on Earth and goodwill. So that was nice. Yeah. Well, uh, way to go, Ike. And our winner this week is Judy Engelsberg from Mount Laurel, New Jersey. And Judy, you will be receiving a beautiful 2023 International Space Station calendar. So you know, maybe uh, somewhere on there will be pictures of weird objects people have sent to space. <laughs> No, I checked through it. It doesn't have any of that stuff. It's just beautiful ISS pictures. <laughs> but we did get a lot of messages from listeners on this one, um, particularly about the SCORE satellite. Th this one cracked me up. <laughs> so one of our previous winners of the trivia contest, Eric O'Day from Winchester, Massachusetts, wrote, some of these old satellites looked cool, but SCORE, it looked like the back of someone's refrigerator fell off. No style at all. <laughs> <laughs> well, that, that's that's a funny image. Uh, I, I have to look it up now. No, I did. I looked it up and he's right. And we also got this great topical limerick from Jonathan Gorbach from North Virginia, USA, who wrote, From a relay above in the night came a voice that was measured and bright. Warm felicitations to all of Earth's nations. Score one for President Dwight. <laughs> oh, nice. Very That's nice. Got anything more or shall I move on? Yeah, I, I did want to share one more message, which really kind of, you know, put a smile on my face. Joe Shu from Kapuras Cove, Texas, wrote in, I'm an exchange student from Taiwan. My host parents and I like space. We usually listen to your podcast together when we're in the car and we really enjoy it. Though I can't understand much, I still like it. So thank you so much. And that makes me really happy to hear because my family used to host exchange students when I was a kid. And there's just so much that we can learn and share with each other, whether or not it's about space or different cultures and languages or just about each other in general. So I wanted to say thank you, Joe, for listening to the show. And I hope you have a really great time while you're visiting Texas. All right. You ready to move on? Yeah, let's do this. All right. In our friend, Comet ZTF C2022B3. What does ZTF stand for? Ooh. Go to planetary.org slash radio contest. Nice. And we'll be selecting just one winner for this one, but they will be receiving a copy of a book called The Year in Space by the Royal Astronomical Society's Supermassive Podcast. Other great space podcasts out there. It highlights all of the really exciting things that happened last year in space, including what happened with the James Webb Space Telescope. So if anybody wants to enter, you have until Wednesday, February 8th at 8 a.m. Pacific time to get us your answer. And you'll want to go to planetary.org slash radio contest. All right, everybody, go out there, look up the night sky and think about the optimum design for a can to maximize 
the volume while minimizing the surface area. Thank you and good night. Thanks for joining us this week on Planetary Radio as we continue to marvel at our place in space. Come back next week for a dose of new Martian discoveries with Mars expert Tanya Harrison. Planetary Radio is produced by the Planetary Society in Pasadena, California, and is made possible by our stellar members. Mark Hilverta and Ray Pauletta are our associate producers. Andrew Lucas is our audio editor. Josh Doyle composed our theme, which was arranged and performed by Peter Schlosser. And until next week, Ad Astra. Astra.